Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Well, let me pray for us as we stand. Heavenly Father, we pray very much for your help this morning. Uh, we pray that in our lives you would, you would speak powerfully, break into what we're thinking, the direction we're going, and do so in a powerful way this morning, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do sit down. As you're sitting down, uh, it'd be very good if you could make sure that uh, you've turned back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. It's page 1061 in the church Bibles. And uh, amongst the papers you were given on the way in, there's a handout as well. Uh, So you might want to use that uh, for making notes or following along. Now, last Sunday, um, we were remembering and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was a very good time, I think, uh, hugely encouraging in many ways to spend that time together remembering those wonderful things. But I wonder wonder if, uh, like me, you also found it in at least one way quite frustrating, quite frustrating. You see, one of the things we were doing last week uh, was looking again at the very clear historical eyewitness accounts that we have in the Bible that that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. It's historically plausible and uh, it might seem to us even obvious truth from the scriptures. But the frustration, of course, is that we're doing so in in a context, in a cultural context, where the vast majority of the world around us are simply refusing to engage with that evidence, what seems to us to be unavoidably compelling evidence. Now that frustration, I think, was well put um, in a spoof report uh, posted last week on the satirical Christian news website, the Babylon Bee. Um, This is a a spoof report, just want to make that very clear, a spoof report talking about how those who wouldn't class themselves as Christians uh, spent last weekend. That's how the report goes. This Easter weekend, millions of people around the world will affirm their sacred belief that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth was an elaborate hoax pulled off by a few poor fishermen. Speaking to reporters, one man explained how his belief that Jesus did not actually rise from the dead is foundational to his life. 
Without my faith that it was actually a vast, intricate fabrication carried out for unclear reasons, I don't know where I'd be right now, he said. Pressed about the logic behind his beliefs, he smiled at the reporters and replied, you know, you just have to have more faith. So there's the problem, I guess, isn't it? To us, the evidence for the resurrection seems so clear. That's what it seems like from the inside. But we forget what it looks like or feels like on the outside. And in fact, at around the same time as that Babylon Bee article, there was an editorial in a real newspaper, the Guardian newspaper, that began like this. What happened during the first Easter in Jerusalem cannot be retrieved by the methods of historical inquiry. It's hard to disprove the resurrection, but neither can the evidence of the Bible compel belief that something so clearly impossible actually happened. So there you got it. The resistance to the idea in black and white, we cannot know. In any case, it's impossible. End of story. Now, I think it can be quite disorientating uh, coming across that kind of attitude, that kind of refusal to engage, coming across it for the first time. I've spoken uh, to people, for example, who very enthusiastically invited their friends along to one of our, our Christianity Explored courses, you know, and they're excited to know uh, what they'll make of the session where we, we look at the evidence for the resurrection. But then when it comes to it, their friends are not even remotely persuaded. Now, when that happens, it can knock our confidence. Uh, we might wonder to ourselves, is the evidence really so strong after all? Uh, that then knocks, has a knock-on effect on our, our hope in Christ and our hope in the future. And it certainly knocks our confidence in terms of speaking to others. It knocks our willingness to speak of the resurrection and to invite our friends and others along to courses like Christianity Explored. Well, we're starting a short, new short series this week looking at what Luke has to tell us about the resurrection and, and living after the resurrection and living after Easter. And uh, one of the things we'll see uh, right from the beginning is that Luke is very concerned for our confidence there might be situations that knock our confidence, but Luke is concerned for our confidence. Uh, even today, as you can see from the handouts, if you're looking at that, um, he's going to help us to be confident in the historical reality of the empty tomb. So we're going to go back to that again. Uh, but also confident in the new narrative that we can be part of in Christ. And yes, confident to speak of these things even if, even if we're likely to be met with resistance and scepticism. Uh, so if you were thinking this morning, what's this, the resurrection again? Didn't we do that last week? We uh, make no apologies. Uh, this really is too important to move on from just yet. And while Luke does take us beyond, we'll see this, that Luke does take us beyond the historical evidence to the implications of the resurrection, we, it's good also to go back and look at that again. It's nonetheless good to, to look at the evidence once again, beginning here in Luke chapter 24, at uh, the beginning of the Luke chapter 24, with the confidence that Luke can give us in the empty tomb. Confidence in the empty tomb. This is the first point on the handout. This is, of course, the first necessary and foundational step for accepting that Jesus rose from the dead. Obviously, if Jesus' corpse was still there, as we've just been singing about, if it was still there, there's really nothing more to say. But the truth is, Jesus' body was not there in the tomb, and Luke presents his evidence for that 
to us in two stages. Uh, First, you'll see there's the eyewitness evidence of the women who were the first to visit the tomb. Uh, Verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they'd prepared and went to the tomb. Now, these are the same women, the very same women as those at the end of chapter 23, uh, who had followed Jesus from the cross to the tomb, and they've seen him buried. And uh, they've prepared spices to anoint uh, the body, uh, but they've waited before doing all of that, uh, not because they're waiting for something extraordinary to happen, because, but because Luke tells us they wanted to wait to the end of the Sabbath. And uh, clearly, therefore, when they turn up on that first morning, they're expecting to find a body. That's why they brought the spices. But, verse 2, when they get there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And uh, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. He was not there. Okay, so that's the first stage. Then there's the eyewitness evidence of Peter later in our passage. Uh, Like the others in the room who hear what the women have to say about what's happened, um, he thinks their testimony is idle talk or nonsense. That's verse 11. Um, That is, he thinks almost certainly they're mistaken and the body's probably still there. But he goes to check anyway. And verse 12, he finds exactly the same. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And again, he finds no body, just the abandoned grave clothes. Now what Luke's doing in this chapter of his gospel is helping us to accept what the uh, two angelic figures figures say here in verse 6. He wants us to conclude that Jesus has risen from the dead. But the first step in reaching that conclusion is to accept that the body of Jesus was not there in the tomb. So you see how it goes. The men say, he is not here. And they want the women and us to believe their declaration, the declaration that comes straight after that, he has risen. Now there's much more to say about this. There's more evidence to come later in the chapter to help us to reach that conclusion of he is risen. We'll come back to it in the next few weeks. But the first step at least seems pretty clear. The women were expecting to find Jesus' body there in the tomb but they find it gone. Peter doesn't at first believe them, but he goes to check and he confirms, yes, Jesus was not there. There's just the grave clothes abandoned. Now, that might seem pretty clear to us, uh, but I suppose an obvious comeback that we might engage with, and you might be thinking this yourself, uh, yeah, but that's just what Luke says. How do we trust Luke? Um, Especially, how can we trust Luke when his account seems so different from those of the other gospel writers? Uh, Now, that's a very good question. I think it would be worth spending some time addressing it this morning. How does this account fit with the other accounts we have in the Bible? Like the one we were looking at uh, last Sunday evening, for example, from John's gospel. Well, let's think about it. Now, some of you, I, I imagine, will already be f- very familiar with the, what the other gospel writers, Mark, uh, Matthew, and John, uh, say about that Sunday morning, that first Sunday morning. But even if you don't know those other accounts, I want to begin to persuade you that they do all fit together. And that this will be a helpful start for you as you begin to look into this for yourselves. Now, all four of the gospel writers tell us about the women going to the tomb 
uh, first thing that Sunday morning. Mark names three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, who is the wife of Zebedee. Uh, Matthew focuses just on the two Marys. John focuses just on Mary Magdalene. From John's account, we can also work out that Mary Magdalene doesn't, doesn't stay very long at this point. He, he, she doesn't have the encounter with the angelic figures here in verses 4 to 7. As soon as she sees that something's wrong, she runs off straight away uh, to tell Peter and the others. Uh, that leaves the other Mary and Salome to take a closer look. And they are the ones who have the angelic encounter here, which Mark and Matthew also record for us. Uh, once they've had that, they run off too to tell the 11 and the others. That's verse 9 here. Joining back up with Mary Magdalene in verse 10. Now there's another ver- uh, woman mentioned in verse 10. Uh, she's called Joanna. Um, she's not actually new to us in Luke's gospel. Luke introduced us to Joanna back in chapter 8. We learned that she's the, the wife of Chusa, uh, the manager of Herod's household. Now, it could, of course, be that Joanna was one of those women who went to the tomb first thing. She just doesn't get mentioned or mentioned or named in that context. Or it could be that Mary and Salome picked her up, along perhaps with others as well, in their journey from the tomb to the other disciples. And there's a map on your handout which shows where that journey began. It's at the tomb near Golgotha, at the west of the city wall. And the journey then went somewhere, uh, either to somewhere just south of the temple or to where I've marked with an X on the, on the handout, passing uh, some places that Joanna might well have been staying. Anyway, by verse 10, there's quite a number of voices, a number of women, a number of voices, perhaps a cacophony of voices from those who had either seen the empty tune or they've heard about it. But verse 11, the apostles did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. However, we're told Peter's sufficiently worried by what he hears uh, to go and check it out for himself. And in John's gospel, we learn that he didn't go alone. John, in fact, went with him. And hence, we have the more detailed first-hand eyewitness account that we looked at last Sunday evening. What's more, we can work out that Mary Magdalene went back too and stayed on after Peter and John had left, crying outside the tomb. She then looked in and had her own encounter with the angels, and uh, she was the one who turned around to be the first to see the risen Jesus face to face. Anyway, that's one way of fitting together the different gospel accounts. Uh, There may well be others. There are other ways of kind of putting these things together. The point is this, the gospel writers do not contradict each other. They don't contradict each other. What we then have is four independent historical accounts, each based on plausible eyewitness evidence, each making the same point. The tomb was empty. Jesus' body was not there. The grave clothes were still there, carefully removed from the body, as we were thinking about last week. All of that rules out the idea that the body was stolen or removed for political reasons. But the body was not there. And then later in in Luke's evidence and the evidence of the other gospel writers, we can add in the appearances of of the risen Jesus, first to Mary Magdalene, then to Peter, to the two men on the road to Emmaus we're going to look at next week, to the other apostles, and then to many, many others. 
So we can add the appearances of the risen Jesus. And to that, we can add the extraordinary transformative impact all this had on their lives as they went out to spread the news of the resurrection and did so at great personal cost and even risk of death. All of which, when we put it all together, makes accepting the words in verse 6 here entirely rational and reasonable. He is not here, the men say. Conclusion? The conclusion should be, should be obvious. He is risen. He is no longer among the dead, but the living. Now, I know that I'm uh, quite literally, um, in fact, um, preaching to the converted this morning. Um, so hopefully, most of you are just responding in your hearts, Hallelujah! He is risen indeed. Uh, but I, I know that there may just be some here this morning who haven't quite yet come to accept this. So then, let me, please let me uh, just gently challenge you this morning. Uh, are you going to follow the lead of that Guardian editorial and say, I'm not going to engage with this. I don't want to look into this. I don't need to look into this. We can't possibly know. I already know it's impossible. End of story. Are you going to respond like that? Or are you going to follow Peter's lead here in verse 12? Even if at first the story seems to you like idle talk or nonsense. You know, you can see that the issues here are so important. So important that you simply must go and look into it carefully. And examine the evidence for yourselves. Well, Luke's concern here is not just to convince of us of one particular historical truth, important though that is. We've already seen that each of the gospel writers has certain things they want to focus on and em- emphasize. And uh, before we finish this morning, uh, I'd like us to look, look briefly at two of the emphases in this passage, in Luke's account. And the first interesting thing here is a relatively large amount of space Luke gives to these angelic beings in verses 4 to 8. The the two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning. And I want to persuade you this morning that Luke is giving giving us, through these these two figures, um, a confidence in a new narrative. So it's not just confidence in historical truths, but confidence in in a new Narrative. Now, what on earth do I mean by that? Well, it's like this. We all have certain entrenched instincts about the way the world is, about the way life is and the way life unfolds and how we fit into it. We sort of fit into a certain story that we have in mind or, or narrative. Take the women in our passage. What's the, the story or, or narrative they're assuming that they are part of? What are they assuming at the beginning of our passage? Well, I think it's the same as the narrative most people in the world and across history have assumed. And it goes like this. You know, we're born. Uh, sometime in the future, we're going to die. And in the meantime, we make the most of the brief opportunity that we have. And that's it. Uh, Like most stories, it's got a beginning, it's got a middle, and it's got an end. And the end is very clear. It ends in in death. Uh, Now, for a brief moment, these women 
uh, previous to this may have thought that in Jesus they'd found someone who might challenge that narrative. But now he too has died, confirming what they thought all along. That's the story. That's what they're part of. Now, the thing about these stories that we have in our minds is, and place ourselves in is that they are, in fact, massively hard to change or shift. You can see that here. Uh, the men in shiny clothing remind the women they have actually heard Jesus talk about rising from the dead. But it simply did not compute. It did not fit their assumed storyline, that the narrative that they're so entrenched in. And so they pretty much ignored it and have by this stage forgotten it. Now we know very similar things from our own experience, how, how resistant we can be to new or challenging ideas. Uh, psychologists know this too. You know, when, you, when a new idea challenges our instincts or, or the narrative that we think we're part of, we put all of our mental energy not into reassessing that narrative or reassessing what we think, but into dismissing or explaining away the new thing. That's very, very common practice. It's why the apostles here in verse 11 react the way they do. They dismiss the women's words as nonsense. It's why that Guardian editorial took the stance that it did. We can't know these things. It's impossible. It's why if you don't accept the resurrection as historical truth and you heard my challenge a few moments ago to go and investigate it, I know that the chances are, the chances are you still have absolutely no intention of doing anything about it. That's the, that's the sad truth. That's not inevitable. It's not inevitable, as the character of Peter reminds us of in our passage this morning. But there's still a good chance you still won't want to look into things any further. It's all a bit depressing. But on the other hand, it's kind of good to be realistic, I guess. Um, what's going to change our minds here? Well, sometimes only when something extraordinary happens or dramatic happens can we be jolted out of our entrenched narratives to think more carefully about how things must be. In fact, that's one of the things that happens here. These women experience what you might call an epiphany. It's an apocalyptic moment as these two otherworldly beings break into their lives to reveal the reality the women have failed to see. Listen again to what they say. This is from the end of verse 5. They say this, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. This is the good news breaking into the world. Jesus came to take on the role of the Son of Man. It's a role described in Daniel's visions in the Old Testament, for example. Bearing in the place of God's people the persecution of sinful men, even bearing the shame and curse, and, uh, of, shame and curse of death for them on, on the cross, bringing victory for them in his resurrection from the dead. Okay, that's the good news. In other words, because of Jesus, there is now a new narrative that you can be a part of. 
It's broken the old narrative. And it, this new narrative, it doesn't end with death. Now we're going to hear much more about that over the coming weeks. And for the women at the time, this dramatic moment, frightening moment, is enough to make the penny drop. Verse 8, they remembered his words. But what about us? Now, there are no men here this morning so far as I can see. See him dressed in, in clothes that, that gleam like lightning. Uh, although I am told that Peter Collier used to wear a suit like that in his younger years. And uh, maybe he'll turn back to that in his retirement, I don't know. But there's no one like that here this morning. Nonetheless, through this passage, we can still hear the voices of those otherworldly beings thundering down through the ages. He is not here. He has risen. And the question for us this morning, responding to that dramatic moment, is do we have ears to hear? Will the penny drop for us? There's one last thing to say about the way Luke has arranged this passage, what he's emphasized here. And it has to do with the way that the women here model for us Christian mission. It goes like this. So Luke doesn't just want us to have confidence in the empty tomb and the other evidence for Jesus' resurrection. He doesn't just want us to have confidence in this new narrative, this new story that we can be a part of. He also wants us to have the confidence to speak about these things. So our final point this morning, confidence to speak. Confidence to speak. Let's take one last look at Luke's arrangement of these verses. And I want to argue that this is deliberately set up to show us a little model of what Christian mission looks like. It's a foretaste of the mission Jesus is going to send all of the disciples on at the end of the chapter. A mission that's worked out for us, of course, in the book of Acts. Now, we just looked at the the heavenly revelation of the good news to the women in verses 4 to 8, which provided the women with the news to take to the other disciples and and effectively commissioned them in a mission, a little mission, it's true, but a mission that takes them across the city. And uh, then they get there in verse 9. And uh, they may well have gathered a number of others along the way uh, to talk of and spread this news, this news, this good news. And even at this point, it's very interesting, isn't it? We're learning something about Christian mission. Uh, These are unusual people in many ways to choose for uh, a mission for God. And it reminds us something that's true across, we've learned from across the New Testament. There are no specialists in this mission. There's no gender divide in particular. Uh, There's no divide full stop. Everyone's involved. Everyone has a voice in this new mission to the world. Uh, But let's just look again at the final two verses of our passage. This is the response that they get when they get to that room. Verse 11. But they, that's the 11, the others there, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to, to himself what had happened. And I think this does take us back to where we began this morning, to the big issue that we've been thinking about uh, throughout our, our time today, to that kind of stubborn resistance to engage with the evidence, 
Uh, we saw it very much in that, that Guardian editorial. Or think again of the person who's invited their friends along to Christianity Explored or some other similar course, who's then bitterly disappointed that their friends are not persuaded Jesus must have risen from the dead. And I suppose the very simple point to make is this. This is what Luke is helping us with this morning. It has always been like this. The response to the Christian message has always, at first at least, been minimal or mixed, or at best, very slow. Uh, We imagine, I think, that when we outline the evidence for the resurrection, people are going to throw their hands into the air and cry out, you know what, you were right, I never thought of it like that before. I repent and believe. But they don't. And verse 11 here reminds us the same was true for the very, very first response to the news of the resurrection. Uh, And this was, you know, a kind of promising group to speak to, wasn't it? But the 11 do not respond. They do not respond to the news by crying out in unison, Hallelujah, he is risen indeed. And it's not just because they weren't Anglicans. I'm sure they would have been Anglicans if they could have been Anglicans. It's because the news they're, they're hearing is so extraordinary. It's so difficult for any of us to kind of process. And I think I'm personally now very strongly resolved to remember this. And to remember this next time I speak to someone about the resurrection. And knowing at that moment that the chances are, it's not inevitable, but the chances are there won't be a positive response there and then. The chances are I'll sound like someone talking nonsense. I might even say that. You know, so I know this is going to sound strange and outlandish, but I'm going to say it anyway. And so I'll still do it. And this passage encourages me to do so. Not just because I can be confident that the news of the resurrection is true. Not just because the resurrection opened up this new story for us, this radical new narrative for us to be a part of, gloriously. But I'll, I'll continue to do it because even if the default response may well be skepticism, I can be confident from this passage and from the rest of the scriptures that there still may be a positive and significant response in the end, just as we have here from Peter. And in fact, that's always been the pattern of Christian mission. The word is spread widely. The word is spread widely, but there are mixed responses to it. But some of those responses do, in the end, turn out to be incredibly significant. Uh, That's the pattern that Jesus himself has described in his own teaching in the parable of the sower. It's the pattern we see repeated over and over again in the book of Acts. It's a pattern that we may have encountered in our own experience that we can see across church history. And actually it's a pattern that we can be confident in. We can be confident that it works. Because it has brought the news of the resurrection across thousands of miles and thousands of years and down hundreds of generations to us here in Sheffield. And for that, we are eternally, eternally grateful. Well, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this again, and we thank you that it is such great news. We thank you that it breaks into our life, our lives, which are so lacking in hope, which are so such aimless stories, and changes them, transforms them. And we pray that you might be breaking in in that kind of way here today and this morning. And we pray that this we would go out with renewed confidence in these truths, in our hope, but also a confidence to speak. And uh, we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.